ESPN LA, Kamenetsky Brothers Podcast, just Andy in today, but I got a guest. He is a director, a writer, a producer, an all-around creator of content. He has founded content agencies, been a part of projects ranging from James Bond's Quantum of Solace to campaigns for Jordan Brand, Wilson, Major League Soccer. His new documentary, Unbanned, The Legend of AJ1, tells the story of Nike's Air Jordan 1, the shoe that changed Nike, it changed Michael Jordan, it changed sneaker culture, pop culture, even the world. It features interviews ranging from Spike Lee to Chuck D to David Stern, Quincy Jones, and of course, Michael Jordan. It is coming soon on digital, on demand from Lionsgate. Dexton Debery, how are you, man? I'm, I'm great. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, I guess to begin, what made you decide to tell this story? What was the impetus? Uh, you know, I'd always had this kind of burning desire to kind of get at the zeitgeist of Jordan, you know, both the man and the shoe. Uh, and it seemed like the closer I was getting to it, working with the brand and doing some advertising, I still wasn't really getting the answer. And so one day you know, I got I got briefed on, on a 31 campaign that was taking inspiration from the one. And it just clicked for me that like, oh, you know what? It's an origin story. Like, that's my answer to this burning question. So I went after it. That's interesting. The idea that you're even inside Nike, you're still having trouble pinning this down. Why, why do you think that is? You know, I, you know, the journey of the film really, I think, answered that. Uh, you know, I was I was very perplexed by that question myself. And, you know, I think because MJ himself is such a prolific, you know, massive global iconic figure that it's very easy to just say it's it's all about Michael. And it has a lot to do with Michael, no question. But it really, once I got into it and, and peeled back the layers, you realize that the shoe became a symbol of something very, very important to people. And when you think about symbology and other artifacts of symbology, you start to realize that those symbols are, it's not a piece of wood or a piece of metal. It's way, way more than that. And that's true of the shoe. So like in that sense, as you were creating this documentary, you're actually answering your own questions. Like at, at what point, I guess, making the film, did you sort of figure out, okay, this is what it is? Yeah. That, you know, I was, uh, I was actually interviewing uh, MJ's longtime uh, business manager and, and partner, Esty Portnoy. Uh, and she told me a story about uh, a young boy who ended up passing away from cancer who was looking uh, to Michael for inspiration and reading his books and wearing his shoes. And uh, he ended up being buried in his shoes. And she was saying that the, it, that this was a, this. Be, she realized at that moment that this was a symbol of hope for that boy. And he may have lived a little bit longer over his time of being ill because of his hope in those shoes. And when she said that, I said, you know what? That's what the movie's about. Uh, Peter Moore, the Air Jordan 1 creator, in, in the film, he describes Nike in 1984, or around that time, as a half-ass shoe company. It was basically more of a marketing brand than anything else. And they were getting crushed by Adidas, you know, heading into that draft where they eventually ended up, you know, putting all their eggs in the Michael Jordan basket. How critical was it for Nike, just in terms of company solvency or longevity, to have come up with something like this shoe? Massive. I mean, the year that the shoe came out, they doubled their revenue that year for the entire company, the entire Nike organization. Wow. That's insane. Yeah, for one product. That's... <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you think about what might have come without that doubling of a product and without, like, a real identity or direction. If 
it might be premature to say Nike would have folded, but it definitely would have been a different company than what we have now. It would have been different. You know, Phil Knight likes to say that, uh, you know, it, it, it just would have been a different journey, and I believe that to be true. But, you know, it's hard to say what that journey would have been without Michael Jordan. Uh, one of the things that I learned about the, uh, sneaker culture in this movie that I thought was really interesting is how sneakers themselves, they began as this status symbol. Like, if you own them, you were playing lawn tennis, which meant you were rich. And then sneakers became sort of the shoe of the poor. And then eventually they've come back around to, you know, sort of a status symbol in their own right, you know, because of the pricing of them and the the fashion of it all and that. And it's just – it was like this reminder of how different things just come full circle in life and just any type of product, if you have like enough patience and belief in it and imagination, you know, they can take on this massive life of their own. Yeah, big time. And, you know, I think the other thing that that I learned from – the journey of making the film was just this idea that, you know, there's, I believe that there's kind of a spirit that's born in the shoe somewhere. And it's, it's, you know, it's a little bit of Michael, it's a little bit of Phil, it's a little bit about the energy of Nike, but it's also about the energy of the people at the time who co-opted it and made it their own. But it, you know, it's almost this thing that where the shoe was almost going to happen no matter what, you know, like it had a destiny, it was going to fulfill it. And like, because MJ didn't want to do it. Nike didn't originally want to sign them. You know, there was all these factors that made it really unlikely, but they came together and they happened anyways. And then it exploded. And like nowadays you feel like everything's sort of best laid plans, but that was not a best laid plan. That was like a massively happy accident. No, we actually owe a debt of gratitude to Michael Jordan's mother. Yeah, Like she, she ultimately talked him into doing this because he was skittish about, you know, Nike going in such a different direction. And, and, you know, do I want to be like this, human embodiment of a shoe and yeah, she, she said no do it yeah she he didn't even want to go to portland you know for the trip to even meet him and she said no you you, you have to go you know it's the right thing to do and it's you know it's a respectful respectful thing to do yeah speaking of michael jordan you know being the face and the embodiment of, of the shoe phil knight was told at the time that this shoe was going to be the death of nike and you know you're putting a black athlete front and center not just of like this campaign but again like he's the embodiment of this shoe like Michael Jordan and this shoe will be interchangeable and it's funny how Nike didn't just have the correct vision in terms of picking Michael Jordan and you know showing how the racial element of this can be transcendent you know at that time you know in the 80s or you could say even now you know that that racial element can be tra- uh, transcended but also just they were ahead of the curve in branding like the idea of humanizing brands because if you look at the way branding is done now that's something that all these different companies are looking to do. Yeah, like, I, just thought, I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's massively so. And I think, you know, I think it speaks a lot to Nike's really original ethos. You know, they were a bunch of athletes. And they, they the one thing that they've always done extremely well is they've known who they are and they've stayed true to it. They are they they make products for athletes and they're made by athletes because most of the people that work there are athletes. And I think that that, you know, expressing yourself with with authentic intention is is really what you're talking about and you know you can't fake that right obviously they they went full you know full full uh ahead with michael jordan you know with the this branding plan but like did you get a sense at all of internally how concerned they were about what people were saying like no really you can't do this with a black man you know with a black athlete like at this time like this will be problematic 
Yeah, I think, you know, I think it was actually less internal and it was a lot more external. You know, the, the legal team and, you know, the consultants and people around them were like, no, 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 no. But internally, it was pretty consistent that they were like, yeah, no, f- doing it. Are they, are, they, are they just like a pretty, I don't want to, progressive, you know, now has taken on this term that, you know, it's been a vocabulary, it's been co-opted, but just that type of vision, like, is that just pretty consistent with what they are? Yeah. It really is. You know, they, they've they've always really taken risks. They were kind of born on it, you know, from the Prefontaines and, you know, you Phil back in the day, picking MJ. But everything has really been like they've, you know, they stuck with Tiger, you know, they backed Colin. You know, it's they've always taken risks and said, you know, we're going to do what we feel is right. If it's, everyone doesn't love it, so be it. It's also funny, too, just the idea of seeing Nike and especially Michael Jordan in this rule breaking light. Because, you know, they're both very corporate. I mean, Nike is this massive corporation. Michael Jordan is a corporation in and of himself. But also, you know, Michael has this very buttoned-down, manicured image by design. He's done a lot of that, you know, for the, for the idea of the bigger picture of what he's doing branding-wise. And it's easy to forget how, like, at the time, Michael Jordan rubbed people the wrong way. You know, I mean, he was considered brash. You know, you show up to meetings wearing sweatsuits like he – Michael Jordan actually had a period where he rubbed people the wrong way. Yeah, and you know, for him, I think as, uh, he'll he'll tell you, and and his mother will tell you as well that he he grew up right, and he actually never set out to be a rebel or a renegade. Like he's never done things to say, you know, f you or you know, stick up to the establishment. He's just insanely confident in who he is, so he's always been exactly who he is, and that mixed with like an insane amount of competition you know has led him to be like oh i'm i'm going to do it my way not necessarily against you but just because i'm confident in my way and my way is going to ultimately let me win but but it's interesting too though because even with that confidence he still had some apprehension about the idea of like this being the marketing plan because it was just so different yeah absolutely you know that that's it's it's just funny the idea too, like in you know Spike Lee being early involved with this campaign, like all these, all these things now that we sort of take for granted in marketing the idea of these athletes showing all sides of their personality and and, and wanting them to do that, or the idea of Spike Lee or different directors that either would be considered controversial or something like that being involved in these campaigns. Back then, that was pretty wild. Yeah, and, you know, Spike talks about this a lot, but he, you know, he was pretty shocked that he got chosen when, you know, Michael was, uh, you know, this rookie with all this potential. And, you know, they're with this big ad agency and they could have picked any A-list director at the time. And Spike certainly was not that then. It's hard to imagine now because he is, but back then he wasn't. And, you know, he asked Michael and only got the answer like 15 years later. And Mike, you know, he said, why did you pick me? You could have had and listed all these guys you could have had. And Michael was like, because you wore the shoes. <laughs> I mean, that belief. He, he wore the shoes. I mean, he, it, he was authentic to it. Like he was he was actually an authentic fan. But I mean, but that's that next layer, though, in terms of marketing. You know, like we were talking about earlier, the idea of like humanizing something, you know, the best humans to be a part of some type of marketing are the people that really enjoy the product in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Um, It's also funny too, just how Air Jordan ones, like compared to what sneakers have become, like, you know, like a lot of insane bright colors and crazy patterns, they're pretty benign by today's standards. But like back then that was a controversial shoe. Like that was really, 
really different. Yeah, you know, I mean, it you know, broke the NBA's color rule, you know, so it, it was very different, but it was it was all that red, you know. Um, but it, I think that the simple, the simpleness of the silhouette is part of what has made it so iconic and so lasting. You know, if it would have been some crazy design, you know, that was, you know, oddly shaped or whatever. Like, I don't know that it would have lasted the test of time, you know, so much, but it, 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 it sort of continues to break through and become popular again with each new sort of fashion trend. So there's something essentially grounded even at the time when the shoe was considered really groundbreaking. Like there's something familiar in that design. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you mentioned breaking the color line with, uh, the NBA and the, and their rules. Was the shoe actually banned because the movie presents contradictory viewpoints? Yeah, it, it, it was banned. It was banned. Some of the events around it uh, may have taken place a little bit differently than a lot of people remember, but they did. In fact, it did break the rules, and they did ban they did ban it from play. And he never wore them in a game again. So, I mean, how long then was the process of? him being able if if he could at all from being able to wear shoes like that like how long did it last or when when was the point where if not mj people could start having like a a looser rules on what you would wear they just changed the rule about five years ago four years ago yeah when i when i when i interviewed uh adam silver he was like you know we just changed the rule three years ago and it's it's been have they just not been enforcing it though because they haven't been enforcing it okay but they just officially legally changed it in the rule book how long did it take though i guess for them to just start looking the other way did you get it did you get a sense of that you know that's a good question i i think it was i think it was probably like five or six years maybe okay it was a while and it wasn't radical. It, it, you know, it, it, I was probably like a slow burn over maybe like 10 to 12 years. It's interesting, too, I thought, how the movie both presents the mythology of the Air Jordan 1s, but also deconstructs some of the myths, like, you know, the idea of the band, which, which gets argued about in the movie, or, you know, the idea of whether kids were truly killed for these shoes, you know, that it's not quite that simple when you look at everything going on in, in in the community, in those communities where, you know, this was taking place. Was that something you set out to do, like the idea of both building up the mythology and breaking down some of it as well? No, it's something I discovered along the way. I, you know, I, I was really, I took a very journalistic approach. You know, I was really looking to kind of tell the truth, you know, whatever that may be. And then specifically around the events of the, of the banning of the shoe itself and, you know, to airship, to not airship. I, I, after a series of interviews, when I got very contradicting truths from very reputable people that I trusted and believed in. And I I believed that they believed they were telling the truth. I started realizing that there actually wasn't like one clear truth. You know, there's sort of a fact that lies somewhere in the middle and then there's everyone's kind of, you know, opinion or even memory around it. But what I realized and where how I tried to shape in the film was this idea that like, as if, as in any great mythology, it's it's not the facts of the the story are not actually the point. It's the it's the point of the story, the larger point of the story overall that is the point. So, like whether the sea actually parted or if it was low tide, and you know, you know what I mean. Like it, it that's not really the point of what what it, what happened exactly or not. Well, it's so. also it's. I mean, I think what you get at is why people would believe it in the first place. Like yeah. why why would it be important to people to believe? the rise of this shoe, whether it happened exactly the way people remember it or not, like what makes them gravitate towards it in the first place. Yeah. hundred um, percent. 
one of the things I thought was interesting that it seemed like the movie laid out was just the idea that at the end of the day, sneaker culture now, it's basically just culture. Like there, there isn't really much of a, you know, a division between everything that sneaker culture represents and just sort of what our culture has, if not come to represent, certainly like the different elements that we deal with in our culture. Yeah, I think that that's a radically good point. And I think, you know, I think the lines are blurring across the board, you know, for culture, for behavior, for, you know, the way that we consume content, you know, it, it, everything is sort of collapsing into itself a little bit. And I don't, I don't think people are so segmentized by, you know, what they wear, what they listen to, what they watch, who they hang out with, you know, it's, we, for good, I think for, for much more positive, you know, result, like we've found a way to coexist and collapse those things and share a lot of things together, you know, which I think has a lot of amazing implications to it. What do you want people to take away most from this movie? That you can really find hope in the most unorthodox or unlikely places, you know, and and I think that a large group of people found a lot of hope and inspiration in this shoe and they found confidence and an in, uh a driver for them to kind of step up and speak up and be who they who they wanted to be. Um, and that's a pretty amazing thing. I think if you can take that away and realize like, oh, maybe that's what those shoes are about. That's that's what I that's what I learned. So, you know, to share that with other people is pretty awesome. And then uh, lastly, tell people about the sweepstakes. Yeah. Right, how so, they can get involved. Cool. Um, so go to unbannedunbox.com. Um, you enter to win. Uh, one of 23 pretty awesome prizes, uh, one of which is an 85 AJ1. Um, you get a download of the movie. Uh, you get There's a couple of other pretty cool prizes as well. Uh, and then maybe coolest of all, uh, a portion of every ticket sold is going to local charities around the country uh, who are focused on empowering uh, underserved youth. Uh, and we did that in partnership with Jordan Wings. That's awesome. That, yeah. That's really, really cool. Again, uh Go to unbannedunbox.com, enter the sweepstakes. You could end up walking away with uh, some pretty cool shoes while doing some really good things. So yeah, that's no awesome, doubt. man. No uh, the, the new documentary, it's Unbanned, The Legend of AJ1. It's coming soon on digital and on demand from Lionsgate. Dexton Debery, appreciate the time, man. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, likewise. It was a pleasure.